Hello, everybody. Welcome to Health Chatter, our episode today on substance abuse with esteemed colleagues, guests, uh, Dana Farley and Pearl Evans. We'll get into formal introductions in a second. I'd like to um, thank, as I, as I always do on the front end of our, of our show, our um, production research, research staff, Maddie Levine-Wolf, Aaron Collins and Matthew Campbell, the three of those, if we didn't have them, um, I know for sure Clarence and I would uh, would not be successful in carrying out health chatter and bringing it to um, all of you in our in our audience. Um, I also like to really formally thank Clarence. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure working with you and collaborating with you on this. Clarence brings a really strong community perspective to our conversation on, on health chatter, and it's greatly, greatly appreciated. If I could give you all hugs, I, I would somehow, but imagine it being done virtually. Um, and then finally, um, our sponsor, Human Partnership which is a great community-oriented organization without their support and, and backing. Again, this would not be successful. So thank you to, to that organization. So today we have, um, we're gonna be talking about substance abuse. To talk about substance abuse and to cover the subject in about you know, 40, 45 minutes is impossible, but um, we will, we'll, we'll have some interesting discussion points that we'll bring out. Um, we always reserve the the opportunity to do this more if um, if certain questions come up that we have to dig deeper into. Um, we will we will definitely do that. So today we have um, Dana Farley. Dana and I have been um, colleagues a long time already, <laughs> and it, it's great um, at the Department of Health. He's the um, the director of the alcohol and drug prevention policy arena at the uh, Department of Health and is extremely knowledgeable about this. His colleague that he works with now, um, Pearl Evans, is is our, is our, I say our because state of Minnesota, right, is our um, overdose prevention program administrator. And both, and their their program, their work actually is within the injury and um, violence prevention section at the Minnesota Department of Health. So, formally thank you both, Dana and Pearl, for 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 being with us today on Health Chatter. It's a pleasure Stan, to be here, Stan. Great, Clarence. Great. great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Stan. All I want right. to say something real so, quick. Let me say something real quick. Yeah. I think today's program is going to be an exciting one because it is one we talk about the 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 uh the you know the community community perspective, the research academic perspective. I think this is a, a topic that, you know, as you just said, 45 minutes is not a long time to do it, but I think that we can do some real uh clarification here that needs to be done because it is one of the areas in which I probably get some of my biggest challenges. And so having Dana and especially having Pearl, 
who I work with on a, on a specific project here is going to be very, very helpful for our community because I know that our community wants to hear this. So let me ask you a, a question. This kind of starts digging deep historically into this. Um, we all remember, at least either intimately or conceptually, the, uh, the concept of the war on drugs. Oh, which which was back during the um, God, whose whose administration was it? Was it the Reagan administration? I think Nixon yeah. started it. Nixon started it. Okay. Anyway, <clears throat> so the war on drugs. So this whole concept of the war on drugs or substance abuse has been around with us a long time. I mean, you can even talk about you know uh, you know prohibition. You know, back in the in the twenties and 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 thirties. So, put it in perspective: Are we still? Do we still have a war? Well, you know, per se, you know, uh, Stan, I, I would say is that um, one of the the problems uh, with the war on drugs approach was a law enforcement approach. And things have evolved. The drug epidemic has certainly evolved into kind of what kind of drugs and unfortunately more fatal, uh, deadly drugs. And, um, you know, this is not a, a problem that we are going to rest our way out of uh, that was done in the past. Um, fortunately, many uh, law enforcement first responders uh, have naloxone, understand that uh, addiction is a disease. And we're trying to approach this from more of a uh, public health health uh, approach here. And so, you know, um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to use the term war on drugs, but I would say is that we're facing uh, drugs. No, no, um, uh, they don't care if you're you're white, black, young, old uh, drugs will uh, be a leveling uh, force. Addiction uh, knows no boundaries. But certain populations, because of the trauma they've experienced, some of the, um, you know, when I want to say stigma, racism, other barriers may be more vulnerable and their communities are more vulnerable. So it's not so much a war on drugs, but we need to rethink our way and rededicate our resources in a different way to uh, fight uh, in a sense or to uh, find solutions uh, against this uh, epidemic. You know, Pearl, I think I what's like your that. thought? Pearl, do you have a thought on that? I would add to um, what my colleague Dana said. Um, and just to go back, um, the war on drugs, it started with Nixon. And as we look at our current um, and recent administrations, um, the Obama, Trump, and the Biden administration have dedicated a mixture of prevention efforts in, including law enforcement treatment services and overdoses and, and overdose emergency. And I will also say um, that through these through these three administrations, we're taking a more public health approach to uh, prevent overdose deaths using a multiple of strategies. Mm -hmm. And that's destigmatizing um, substance use. Um, as a person of substance use, as a person in long-term recovery, um, I can speak to this directly, um, having access to treatment, um, particularly for those communities that have been um, impacted uh, and over-arrested uh, from the war on drugs. So using a more public health approach 
and of destigmatizing substance use and having access to culturally Pacific treatment and treating folks with dignity. Those are um, the public health strategies that we are integrating at the Minnesota Department of Health. Clarence, you wanted to chime in? Yeah, I really did. And I, I like what Dana and, and Pearl have said. This, you know, this is this war has been perceived as a war on, on, on certain communities. And I think that when we talk about when we talk about, you know, uh, we talk about this work, there's so much mistrust about it uh, because it has been um, it has been applied, as Dana said, it's been applied unfairly. And so we have to really do something different. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, uh, as Pearl said, the public health perspective, if we can get that particular perspective uh, more more pronounced or, or just clearer to the community, it, it, it might make our work a little bit better. But right now, it, 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 it is people not getting better, they're getting bitter. And so we have to figure out how do we have this conversation from that perspective. So let me ask you something. Um, you know, way over the years, um, there have been um, drugs that um, people have have abused, and they, they seem to have a life cycle to a certain extent. You know, like, for instance, LSD, okay? You don't hear about LSD anymore, you know, anymore. It probably is out there still. But do, are we, do we just kind of morph into... Um, using different drugs, abusing different drugs as they are made more available or the interest in them comes to a forefront? So I think one of the things, uh, Stan, is that, um, you know, technology changes everything. So, um, you know, we didn't have a podcast uh, five, ten years ago. Uh, you know, we didn't have all the social media we did. Uh, 10 years ago. And some of the technology changes in the drug area is that uh, although, you know, poppies and um, opium go back thousands of years, Correct. alcohol and, yeah. and, and even cocaine, as the technology of how drugs are processed, synthesized, that has changed. And so one of the big uh, things that we've seen in the uh, overdose area here in the nation and in Minnesota is different waves. You know, the first wave with this opioid epidemic started with the pharmaceuticals, the big lie there uh, about these chemicals, these, uh, you know, prescription drugs not being addictive, um, got lots of people uh, addicted. And then, you know, one of the things we started to see is the, the advent then of the more synthetic, the fentanyl and, and the powerful addicting uh, and um, a dangerous overdose potential with the synthetic drugs. And so, you know, that's that's what's changed. The other thing that's kind of changed, and not just the technology is the more processed and dangerous drugs, but then, you know, you think about the, the, the first maybe meth epidemic we had, um, and that was more uh, kitchen chemist. And uh, uh, when I would say... Uh, 
you know, the uh, trailer uh, chemist uh, developing their little lab and doing that. And we said, okay, you know, the precursor they have is the, um, you know, over-the-counter um, antihistamine, and we're going to take that off. And, and that's why you got to, you know, get your antihistamine, you know, sometimes for your allergies behind the counter. And that worked for a while. But now we have, it has been pharmaceutical grade labs with the cartels and the illicit drug users. And so they're making pressed pills that um, look exactly, these counterfeit pills look exactly like Xanax or uh, Percocet, um, but they're adulterated with fentanyl. Um, they, they have a business model and difference than 10, 20 years ago. So I, I think the two major changes is the uh, development of the synthetic drugs, uh, particularly with the opioids and how other things are adulterated uh, with these fake pills and the way they're entered into the drug supply to street users on the web, people trying to access drugs through the web, they don't know what they get. So I think those are some of the major changes with um, those technologies. Pearl, yeah. what, do you, what do you see or what do you think there? Some of the changes. I would add um, that the way that uh, these uh, substances are marketed to um, to different groups, particularly our youth using social media, as Dana said, the technology has changed and the overdose, I mean the the drug overdose profile has changed. So, in the first wave, we seen the pharmaceutical uh, prescription drugs drive the first wave of the epidemic. And then we seen the heroin drive the second wave. Now we're in the third wave where we're seeing an increase in fentanyl and we're seeing the increase in fentanyl marketed um, through social media and marketed to uh, our youth. And so those are some of the things that we are seeing um, currently in Minnesota and across the nation. So the, the, the common denominator in the subject are drugs, just, you know, you know, in quotes. Okay. But then there are other, from, from what I'm understanding, there are other factors that affect the abuse of them going forward, whether it be technology or whether it be social media or whether it be um, issues that are happening out there. Okay. That create more stress for for people in general does that seem like a, a fair statement yeah i think one of the things is um as we were trying to address the uh opioid epidemic at the beginning there the state put together a opioid prescribing work group and i represented the department of health on that and it was taking a look at you know um, the prescribing practices um how drugs were uh pain relievers were being uh used for acute pain and, and then uh, uh, post-acute pain and, and chronic pain. And a couple of things that uh, from that work group, one is this epidemic has been not just a mismanagement of pain pills, but it's been a mismanagement and misunderstanding of pain. And so, and we're talking about not just physical pain, but psychological pain. And one of the things that the common denominator um, uh, here is not only the drugs, but why are people taking drugs? And quite often you have people who are in 
Um, you take a look at the trauma, the adverse childhood experiences, um, and, and situations, and it's it's people uh, often dealing with pain. Sometimes it's physical pain for sure, mm-hmm. and you know we saw that, or people being naive. Early on in the epidemic, one of the leading groups of prescribers were dentists, and they were prescribing uh, long-acting uh, opioids to uh, uh, teenagers that were getting their wisdom teeth taken out, and 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 so you had. Uh, uh, teenagers, youth that were naive to a drug experience, all of a sudden getting these um, uh, powerful opioids, a, a classic example. And unfortunately, that led to a lot of people, you know, there's an old saying in, in the uh, alcohol uh, addiction AA world, you know, uh, first the man takes the drink and then the drink takes the man. The brain gets hijacked, the body gets hijacked. The same thing with these powerful drugs that um, I think um, shorten the time for addiction, you know, as opposed to many of your listeners might be sort of familiar with, at least with alcohol and and realizing that takes typically a a, a longer time for people to become addicted. Um, And and some of these powerful drugs, the time to get addicted, you think about heroin, fentanyl, um, much shorter. Yeah. Let, let me just say then, you know, one of the things we learned with the dentist and with the prescribing work group is changing the way they prescribed and manage pain. So my son, uh, my oldest son had his wisdom teeth taken out and the, the orthodontist did not know what I did for a living. And, um, you know, she, she, you know, he, he had his uh, wisdom teeth taken out and she says, I'm going to give you a combination of, um, acetaminophen, uh, you know, Tylenol and ibuprofen um, and try this out. And we're going to talk about wound management, which will help with pain management. And I'm also going to give your parents a prescription for this uh, uh, opioid pain reliever for three days. If you don't need it, don't take it. So that's a totally different approach than we had five, 10 years ago about focusing on pain management and um, how, how we do practice a little bit differently. Yeah. So you know, I, 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 and Clarence, you you you'll be great at this. You and, and Pearl, risk factors for abuse, community-oriented perspectives on on abuse. Take it away. Well, I'm going to jump in real quick because as Daniel was talking, uh, we talk a lot about opioids, but in the community, we don't call them opioids. I mean, so so yeah. so we we're talking about a whole different kind of of conversation, you know, you're, you're trying to address opioids, but that's not what, we, that's not our issue. I, you know, it, it is our issue, but it isn't our issue because we're, we're talking about language. And so I thought that was one of the most important things, you know, from a community perspective that we needed to, to talk about is how then do we address that issue? I know Pearl and, and others have been helpful to me. And I, one of the stories I, I this, this is my story. I, you, you all have probably heard about 50,000 times, but this is my story. Uh, one of my our members came to me and said we had an opioid problem in our community, and I said, "Okay, I don't do opioids, so I don't know." I went. I was the director of a federally qualified health center outreach department, and I went and talked to one of my colleagues. And I said, "Well, we're going to be talking about opioids." He says, "Why? Your people don't do opioids." I said, "Okay, I don't know." When I got into the community and I asked that question, "Oh yeah, we just don't call them opioids," you know, you know, just like we didn't call, you know, crack was not cocaine and cocaine was not crack. But the 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 application of it 
was applied differently. And so I think that one of the one of the the biggest concerns for me as a, from a community perspective is this whole idea about we have to name it and we have to figure out what we're naming it. So Pearl, I'm gonna let you go because you know. Thank you, Clarence. Um, as a person of lived experience, um, in my active addiction, I continuously heard the phrase opioids, opioids in the news. And I was, like Clarence said, this didn't apply to me because I didn't know what an opioid was. And after several conversations with the doctor and um, some others, I learned that heroin was an opioid. And so I continued to follow the opioid crisis. But then through my recovery journey, I realized that I'm not, I wasn't addicted to opioids. I was addicted to heroin. And as a black woman, this was different for me. So starting to have the conversation that heroin addiction is a treatable medical disease is a message that I've been lifting up in my community so that folks get an understanding that heroin is an opioid. And we do have uh, opioid problem in the black community. We just don't call it an opioid problem. It's a heroin addiction problem. And another thing that's connected to, um, to the black community is that the stigma of saying that you you are a heroin addict or the stigma of saying that you do have a problem with substance use disorder. Um, just coming out and saying that there's a lot of fear around that fear of being arrested, fear of having your children taken. Those are some of the fears that I experienced in active addiction. And now I go around, I share my story so that others become familiar and comfortable and talking about their addiction and asking for help. And that's another barrier that we experience in the black community, um, asking for help, you know, talking to your primary care doctor about having a heroin addiction or a, a pill addiction. Um, most black folks are afraid to say this because immediately, you know, the police can be called, child protection can be called. And so these are some of the barriers that uh, the black community has faced um, in coming out talking about their uh, their addiction. And then the biases in the doctor's office um, that we experience um, because there's a stigma of being a heroin addict, heroin addict as opposed to being an opioid addict. And so there's many um, nuances to and barriers that why uh, African-American folks have a difficult time coming out talking about their addiction because they don't want to go to jail. They don't want their probation, uh, probation officer to find out and revoke their probation or their parole or, you know, some other or lose their housing. So these are some of the things that we have been addressing um, in our work at the Minnesota Department of Health. We've worked with Clarence and the human uh, and human partners to do um to allow Clarence and his community uh, partners to lead a conversation around medical assisted treatment. And what does that mean in the black community? And um, Clarence, I'll let you talk a little bit more about that behavior change and encouraging folks to, uh, to reach out to their community and uh, their community physicians and talk about MAT and how to access MAT. 
Well, I'm gonna be real quick about this because I, I I I want I want Dana and Farrell to talk some more about this, but we have a real serious problem with this MAT and how it's being presented to the community. And so we're going to be approaching Dana and Pearl and, and MDH to say, can we have a discussion uh, to talk about how this can be more readily uh, disseminated, information disseminated, because parents are losing their children, even though they're following the law, they're still losing their children, even though they're supposed to be protected from the law, they're still protected, you know? And so I know that Beck and Ramsey County are doing some things that I just want to to ask for, for from from you right now, Dana, that you will help us to uh, have these community conversations. So, Dana, one one question before we we dig in for our audience: Can you define specifically medically assisted treatment? Well, let me just or kind of, any of you. Yeah, you know, I think uh, Pearl can do that too. In in there, but let me just we've covered a lot here. And I think it's it's great, you know, and just kind of reminding your listeners and that is, and, and I think you guys, I'm so looking at uh, Stan and, and Clarence and, and Pearl like colleagues, but also recognizing, you know, we need to use a, a more uh, public language, simple language in the sense of when we talk about opioids, it's kind of a class of drugs, you know, like fruit is a class that includes apples and pears. And, you know, somebody says, well, I don't eat fruit, but I have apple a day. Um, and, and that opioids is a class that includes heroin and prescription drugs. And the opioids, they do have a role. Uh, the prescription drugs uh, for cancer, particularly after surgery, so oxycodone, uh, uh, oxycodone, hydrocodone, Vicodin, morphine, fentanyl, methadone, these are all what would be considered opioids, and they do have a role in different places. Um, and uh, but uh, heroin uh, is again a highly addictive opioid, and that has uh, is processed from morphine, uh, which originally came from the opio uh, from the poppy leaves. So they're all related here, and so that's kind of a good reminder is that you know, but you need to talk to uh, the message can be heard, and people will use. Um, different even nicknames on the street then uh, for that. And when people are asking for different drugs, um, you know, they'll, they'll have their own own language there. Go ahead, Pearl. Can we, um, I just wanted to add, like there's the legal and illegal um, opioids. So your legal opioids are your methadone, your fentanyl, your, um, oxycodone, your Vicodin, your Roxycodone. And these are all legal opioids. And methadone is what we're calling MAT, medical assisted treatment. Got and it. then there's also buprenorphine. And then there's also Suboxone. So these are your legal opioids. And then we have illicit fentanyl that is marketed in the um, in the drug world, in the black drug market. So we just wanna make that distinction that there are legal opioids and then there are illegal opioids. And legal opioids um, are prescribed by the doctor and they're safe when they're taken um, with medical advice. And yeah, so I'll, I'll stop there, Dana. You know, that's yeah, an so interesting distinction though um, between um, you could almost call it prescribed substance abuse 
and non-prescribed substance what? abuse. Yeah, let me talk again, again a little bit more about uh, the question you asked about uh, medication-assisted treatment, or MAT. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things is that... Um, um, you know, withdrawal, uh, dealing with urges, dealing with some of the withdrawal symptoms is a major barrier um, in, in, in having people uh, uh, get treatment, recovery, um, and that medication-assisted treatment, um, as Pearl was mentioning, it's, it's assisted. And so it's supposed to be working with in combination with the counseling and behavioral health therapies and the support for the whole person. Um, and so what the research has shown is that MAT can be very effective in helping people uh, 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 change their use, quit, uh, enter recovery. It, it also um, improves um, their survival. Um, you know, in, in MAT uh, can be um, administered, started in not just in the um, uh, substance use treatment places, but that's where it's often done. But um, uh, we've increased the access to MAT um, throughout uh, primary care, through family physicians. Uh, one of the programs that uh, MDH has done is with this pr program called TOWNS, Tackling Opioids with Networks. And we have increased the number of MAT providers, particularly in rural areas. Um, to, to increase the access. And so um, there's a variety of medications uh, that are available to, to help uh, in individuals. Um, it's, they're safe to use. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, um, is, it's, it's sort of the gold standard. You know, people um, are helpful to um, use MAT and it, it increases their likelihood of being successful in recovery. Um, and, um, and so that's, you know, a, a little bit of a sort of a surface about that. Pearl, anything more you want to add about that or Clarence? I wanted to add that the methadone is, uh, one of the MAT options. And this is one of the, um, one of the most stigmatized MAT that I think Clarence is talking about. But what I want to assure folks is that MAT is a pathway to recovery. And it was part of my journey um, using methadone. And so I think Clarence um, can talk a little bit more about the stigma in the community around uh, MAT because folks really don't understand that uh, methadone is not replacing a substance, but when it's utilized with behavior health therapy, um, folks can be very successful on MAT. So do you want to speak a little bit about the stigma that you're seeing, Clarence? Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to speak very quickly because I, I, I just love the fact that we entered into the conversation, okay? Because I know that there was a big concern uh, in, in, in our community about this, about this whole issue. And so the, the, the stigma, the stigma that we're, we're confronted with, uh, has already been well, you know, well stated. Uh, but for, for me, the concern is how do we continue to protect and to strengthen our families 
And until we get this information out, until we have a clearer understanding about it, until people really understand what's really going on, we're going to have some, we, we, I as a, as a community health advocate continues to have so many people asking me questions that I cannot answer. You know, and these are answers that only you, the MDH, and, and the state can answer. And that's that's really that's really uh what I what I want to say. And so I see Matthew has a has a, a, a question in, in the in the mailbox too. But I just wanted to put that out there. That's one of the reasons why you know I love this this health chatter is because we get you on the on the radio and we say, Will you do something now? Because so, yeah, we're asking Yeah, Clarence, you know, I um you know, we're, we're having a, a sort of a, a, a table conversation here. And so sometimes right. we get this and that. Yes, definitely. I think one of the things it is concerning and, um, you know, sometimes it takes different systems uh, to kind of maybe uh, uh, get on board or I right. should say understand changes in, in that. Um, you know, I, one example, for example, is, um, you know, fentanyl test strips. It's just a year ago that the legislature uh, made some changes to allow to remove the, the sanction on fentanyl test strips. Before last year, uh, last July, fentanyl test strips were uh, seen as drug paraphernalia and people could uh, be arrested mm. for that and, and charged. And but fentanyl test strips are something that people should have, you know, if they're using drugs or um, you know contemplating that. It's one of the things that people should have sort of in their toolkit. You know, we're we're trying to you know um, uh, prevent uh, overdoses. Uh, treatment works. We're trying to increase access to treatment. Um, we're trying to. Uh, change in aligned systems that healthcare, uh, law enforcement, um, uh, other systems to work more together, to align more together. And so, as you were saying, law enforcement has a role. Uh, they've had a good role in carrying naloxone. Uh, we've done some work with the St. Paul uh, Police Department with their uh, COAST program, a mobile unit uh, that has a social worker and licensed uh, drug counselor and to reach out to people. Uh, we've done some other work, um, again, trying to have uh, outreach in, in various communities, particularly the homeless. Um, so there's lots of things that need to be done. Um, and, and, um, and, and so sometimes as our strategies evolve, we have people that are early adapters and other people that sort of like, oh, OK, you know, and, 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 and moving them along. And so we're, I, I often say everybody has a role in prevention. Everybody has a role in making their community healthier and, and reaching out to people that need uh, help. So let me ask, so I've got, hold the thought on prevention because I'm going to get rid of that. That's, that's kind of a subject that we really want to uh, um, address here. Again, for our listeners, can you, um, boy, maybe the, this is a, a loaded question, but what are, based on all the knowledge that you have in this arena, what are truly the risk factors for high risk substance abuse? What are the risk factors that we, that we have seen? Is it, is it, is well, it the color of your skin, so, for instance? Or is it, um, I don't know what it is, you tell me. You know, I, th I think there's a couple of things. You know, first, um, I used to teach, um, uh, drug class, introductory drug class in the School of Public Health for a dozen years at the U before I came to the, the health department. 
And, um, you know, one of the things students might say, what's the most dangerous drug? And, and I would say sort of, sort of tongue in cheek, well, it's the drug that kills you. And, you know, that could be, uh, um, you know, heroin, it could be methamphetamine, it could be cocaine, um, it could be inhalants, especially for youth. Um, and, and so, you know, um, there's the overdose that we take a look at, and then there's the addiction potential. And as I said earlier, I, I truly believe um, the pill, the drink, um, you know, the person may take the pill or drink, but then the pill or drink. Um, this is a brain disease. Uh, addiction is a, a disease of the brain, and we need to recognize that just like diabetes is a, a, a disease that needs to be treated. And just as people may have, um, uh, in a sense, a relapse from taking their medication or the behavioral health that they're doing for uh, diabetes or cardiovascular um, we don't shame people and say, well, you know, you you fell off your treatment plan and we're going to put you in jail. Um, but we need to recognize, first of all, that this addiction is a disease, needs to be treated as a disease. And so unfortunately, risk factors to it? well, I'm, I'm getting to that. They? So unfortunately, we haven't looked at that and we have criminalized um, yeah, uh, well, drug use and that exacerbates. And I would just say as different risk factors can exacerbate uh, a disease, um, one of some of the risk factors is, you know, adverse childhood experiences. And um, quite, quite frankly, um, you know, when we have, and Pearl and Clarence could talk more about this with their lived experience, but when we have systemic policies that I don't want to say encourage adverse childhood experiences, but have create conditions in communities where people might experience more of those adverse childhood experiences, then you're starting to create some of the risk. And what I mean by adverse childhood experiences, for example, if we're criminalizing drugs and a person gets sent to prison um, and they leave their family and that there's a disproportionate number of people of color in prison because of profiling or because how the system works, then you have more broken families or families that don't have a father present. And then that kid whose father is in prison, how does he get treated in school? And a person of color, you know, the kid, oh, my dad's in prison or my family, we got to, you know, they lost a job and all this stuff. And the teacher might say, and there may be a different biased response. Little Johnny, what's going on here? Go down the office. And there's not even a chance to kind of work with them. And so you get this ongoing cycle, reinforcing loops of, of, of harm, of mistreatment, of um, uh, systemic, uh, I'll say racism and, and different treatment. And that kid drops out. And then he drops out in a community that doesn't have any resources. And his only sort of career advancement is to be a, a, an entrepreneur, which might be uh, selling drugs. And, and so you can see we're in certain communities, or um, I'll just say with our tribal partners, they face some of the same things. And, um, you know, when we talk about those risk factors, and then kind of, so I'll let Pearl and Clarence talk a little bit more about what they see and how that, what I've said, kind of dovetails with their experiences and observations about different risk experiences. Thank you. 
And I'll just add um, some of the risk factors um, that we see in the African-American community is uh, be children being separated from their parents because of the substance use. And we know that African-American children are removed um, from the home at higher rates than uh, their white counterparts who parents um, have substance use. So that's one of the risks that um, Black, Black children in Minnesota experience um, being shuffled into uh, child protection, being shuffled into the foster care system, and then um, a the lack of resources to support uh, those children as they uh, mature out of the foster care system, that's one risk. Um, and then the lack of uh, family reunification of African-American families um, once the mother or the father has uh, completed whatever is necessary for child protection. So those are some of the risks uh, that African-American children experience of, as one of the risks being exposed to substance use. And then there's the isolation. Um, you know, if this child, a Black child is being placed in a home that's not within their community, being isolated from uh, their culture, being isolated from the community is another thing that places them at risk. And so those are some of the uh, risks that um, Black, Minnesota, Black children in Minnesota experience um, that can be a risk to uh, of substance use. And then the uh, over suspension over suspension from school of African-American children is another risk that places uh, Black children um, at, at a higher risk of uh, substance use as opposed to uh, their white counterparts who uh, probably have the same behaviors. So those are some of the risks that places Black children um, at a higher, uh, higher risk than other uh, individuals across the state. Let me just amplify what uh, Pearl was saying there is that we see that with the tribal nations, too. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, you know, our tribal nations um, have some in Minnesota have one of the highest, if not the highest, uh, out of home, out of family placements in the nation. And so what that does for both the um, uh, uh, Native Americans and, and black uh, families is if a mother is using drugs and wants to get treatment and MAT can be used and is preferred than than just cold withdrawal for the health of the baby but if they have this real fear that their kids are going to be taken away it's not just a pretend it happens they're going to lose their kids if they go get help and um, and that's where we try to make some changes with the law in that and with um, mandated reporters. But it's 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 a reality. And that, that just sh goes to show some of their one other point I want to make about this out of home and family is the state developed one of the I think the first in the nation. We developed a stewardship fee for uh, the pharmaceutical manufacturers that provided funds to the state to be used through the Opioid Epidemic Response Advisory Council. And I'm a representative to that. And half of the money that comes to that council uh, so far has been then used, is given to the counties to help deal with this out-of-home placement costs. Uh, you see it in rural areas and in across the, the state. And so that just shows the extent of this out-of-home placement uh, burden on the families, the court system, uh, the uh, other systems and that. So, 
So it's it seems, and may, and and correct me if I'm wrong. There is some commonality to risk factors for substance abuse across different populations. Would that be a fair statement? At least, for, you know, at least from what I've heard from from the uh, the black community and the the. Um, I, I think I think both commonalities, uh, but then again, part of what we see in, in in certain populations that are disadvantaged that are stigmatized is that you get a layering on, yeah, and just yeah. as you have can have layering on of protective factors, you know, intact families being able to. Here's the analogy I want to use. I think most of your listeners are probably familiar with wind chill here in the great state of Minnesota. And so when you have a high wind chill, um, what you do is layer on protective factors, a hat, a couple layers, you're trying to, to layer on these protective factors. And the less protective factors you have, and in this case, intact families, job, good community, uh, ability in, in schools to talk to somebody, um, those sorts of things, the less protective factors you have, the more vulnerable you are to the wind chill of all right. these. The threats. colder you are. <laughs> so let me. All right. So with the with the moments that we have left, there there's two vital questions, and Matthew has the last one. Okay, for sure. Um, prevention. What should you know over all these years, and given how we've addressed um, drug abuse, substance abuse, what truly are the best prevention strategies that we know of at this point? I, I would say um, there's a plethora of strategy, prevention strategies um, where harm reduction being uh, the one that meets folks where they are at in their recovery journey. So like Dana mentioned, the fentanyl test strips, the syringe service programs, these are some of the strategies um, that uh, meets folks where they are at and prevents other harms from happening. For example, it prevents, uh, when you access syringe service programs, that prevents uh, other diseases like HIV and hepatitis. And harm reduction can be, uh, you know, giving folks linkages to treatment when they are ready, not when, um, you know, the court decides you are ready, allowing folks to make the, their own decisions. And harm reduction is rooted in uh, the social justice movement that individuals who use substance and individuals who are in recovery have a voice to make changes in the policies that impacts communities who currently use drugs. So I, I will start with uh, using harm reduction as the strategy, prevention strategy and moving upstream. So yeah. your MAT, your syringe service programs, and then policies that uh, upstream prevention policies that makes uh that increases access to culturally specific treatment. That's one of the upstream uh, prevention strategies right. that um, is the best to uh, to prevent overdose deaths in uh, the BIPOC community. Yeah, and, and yeah. Dana, add on to that. You know, part of your question, Sam, or uh, Stan, is that um, you know it depends on what you want to prevent. 
And so as Pearl was saying here, you know, our large focus has been preventing overdose because we've seen such an increase in in overdoses. It's it's it increased, um, you know, uh, in 2021, the number of overdoses, unfortunately, uh, increased uh, 22 percent. Um, and that was uh, over uh, um, last the previous year. And so we've been focusing on and here's the analogy is we've got people who are in a river. Um, and they're coming to a, a waterfall and we're trying to pluck them out. Yep. We're trying to provide yep. naloxone. We're trying yep. to get them into uh, uh, treatment um, and there. And, and, and somewhat you can move upstream a little bit. Okay, let's teach the people how to swim. Um, and that's, a, you know, that's again, some of the harm reduction, the fentanyl test strip. How do you in this river a little bit more safer or giving you some skills? Now, if we want to really move upstream and prevent people from falling in the river, you know, and about either how do they use drugs without, uh, how do they meet the challenges of life without having to use drugs, that's really moving upstream. Yeah. And yeah. if we're looking at the root causes of some of these disparities, we've talked about stigma, we've talked about some of the policies that might, um, systemic racism. That's really moving upstream and changing communities. Yeah. And that's a different prevention. Yeah. But let me think, one of the things that I think we need to do is recognize that that drug addiction overdose is not the only tree in the forest that's on fire. And that uh, we have lots of things that are, in a sense, burning. Yeah. And that overdose is just one star in a constellation that's related. Yeah, We're same part of the iceberg. Point. And that's so... One of the things, suicide has gone up, um, violence, overdose, and I all think they contain uh, shared risk factors and shared protective factors. Yeah, I agree. So one, one of the things in schools, for example, there are curriculum that help people with social emotional learning, uh, how to identify emotions, how to manage them, conflict resolution, uh, those sorts of things that help not only prevent overdose, but um, suicide uh, ideation and, and violence and bullying. So I think there's some things that we can do to change, um, you know, uh, the, the cause factors, the root cause factors, and not just treat the symptoms. Matthew, this is the infamous last question that, that we are using in health chatter. Take it away. Yeah, so one of the things that we're trying to do uh, better about doing is what do we do? What do we do? Where do we go? What can uh, people who are listening in, what can we do now that we know all of this information that you've shared? Like, where do we go? Everybody has a role. Everybody has a role in prevention. Everybody has a role in their community. Voices matter. And so one of the things is to get involved, have these discussions, go to uh, council meetings, uh, be active. And um, Minnesota has historic uh, settlement from the pharmaceuticals and uh, the large cities and uh, counties have uh, money that has been dedicated toward uh, this from this opioid settlement and the counties or city commissioners uh, boards um, will be deciding what to do with that money and having voices that speak up organizations, faith, faith based communities individuals, uh, whatever you're part of, um, have a role here in speaking up how to use that and that 
with that engagement, hopefully that will get to some policies that we need to change, alignment of services that bring things back together, because what we need is a collective impact, not silos of excellence. Yeah. You know, um, one thing we did not touch on are, um, are the overall statistics on this. And what I can say is this, is that the statistics don't look very good. Okay. And uh, so consequently, I think we really need to do what, what Dana says is we all, we all own this. We all own this issue. And the more that we're engaged in it and the more we're involved in it and the more that we, we recognize it and try to help one another, the better. So um, thank you, Pearl. Thank you, Dana, so much for your, for your, your insights. This has been um, a real treat to have your, your expertise as part of, of, of Health Chatter. Pearl. I just want to add one thing. Um, like Dana said, there has been um, the, the Minnesota <clears throat> pharmaceutical settlement available. All of the counties have money. And one thing that you can do, you can go to um, the substance use. I'll put it in the chat, the substance use and overdose county profiles. And we have 48 county profiles for 48 different counties in the um, across the state. And you can um, it gives you steps on how you can engage with your local and county officials. It gives you information about the data, the overdose data and what it looks like in your community. So you can go have these conversations with your city council person, your county council person and your whoever else you want to have, whatever other uh leaders you want to have a conversation with and um this is a document that you can that gives you the directions on how to have these conversations what it looks like in your community and what steps you can take to make change in your community and one other thing i'll add is the naloxone finder and i'll put those both in the chat you can enter your uh, your zip code and this is a digital map that uh, allows you to find naloxone access points in your area. So wherever you are across the state of Minnesota, you can put in that zip code and you'll get a list of uh, naloxone access points in your area. And um, you can access naloxone to prevent or reverse an overdose death. And you can also um, be trained as a naloxone administrator and carry naloxone because like Dana said, uh, no one is immune from um, overdose and they're happening everywhere in the community. And we need everyone to uh, be part of the role in preventing overdose deaths. So I'll put those links in the chat and thank you so very much. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much. And you know, to all our listeners, this information is available. And also, if you have particular questions, you can get them back to Clarence and I, and uh, we can circle back to, uh, to Dana in, in Pearl to get their insights on the answers for you. So again, thank you so much, Dana and, and Pearl. This has been um, an enlightening conversation. I, 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 like I said at the beginning, I reserve the right to invite you back. Because I, I know that this is a deep subject, and there's there's um, a lot more to uh, talk about. Clarence, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you.
Absolutely. So to all our listeners, um, thank you for listening in. Our next show, which is another hard subject, will be on gun violence. So stay tuned to that. In the meantime, keep health chatting away. Goodbye to everybody. Thank you.